Let's bow our heads and pray, if we may. Lord, your grace has met us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we attend to your word, you would anchor further our hopes in him and of your grace through him. That that grace would bear fruit in our character and we might be more grace-filled because we've attended to your word. Amen. Do you please sit. And do please find uh, the book of Jonah, page 928. Many of you probably heard this week of the death of uh, a church minister, uh, John Stott. Uh, A man of the most enormous influence across the Christian world. We might even say across the world, given that uh, across the world he was responsible for uh, the maintenance of uh, truth in the gospel in uh, many lives, many churches, and the impact that they had on their world. The broadcaster, uh, Jeremy Vine, was reflecting on the death of John Stott, whom he knew, because working at the BBC... Uh, uh, John Stott was over the road and uh, Jeremy Vine got to know him reasonably well. And what he reflected on was, uh, he said, not the 50 books that he'd written, not the thousands of sermons that he'd preached. They were all extraordinary. The man was a a factory uh, for producing godly material. But Jeremy Vine said what he remembered about John Stott more than anything else was his kindness. And he's the kind of man, it's the kind of generation uh, where uh, a number of us may have come across him and I can certainly bear witness to his kindness to me once or twice. Not the things that the world would notice, the books, the sermons, the full churches but his simple kindness. As though somehow the grace of God, when it shone through John Stott, shone slightly sideways, obliquely. Here was the obvious stuff, the the production. The memorial is in all of those. But it was his character that had the most impact. God's grace worked in him to produce that character, not the thing the world will perhaps remember uh, when it writes the obituaries, but God's grace works sideways. What God may count important is not what we do. And that matters when we come to the book of Jonah. When we opened the book uh, a few weeks ago, I talked then about the business of following our vocation the ways in which we do follow it, or the ways in which we try to escape it. I wonder whether you know what yours is. I remember uh, John Stott was regarded as a terrible failure in his family. 
because he grew up in a church in which if you were really the bee's knees, if you were really following the vocation that God had set for you, what you really went to do was to be a missionary in overseas parts. If you stayed home to be a Christian minister, that was very much second best, uh, according to the circles in which uh, John Stott moved. Perhaps you are or will be a missionary. Perhaps you are or will be an evangelist. Those are the kind of things we think of when we think of calling and vocation. But perhaps they're completely different from that. Perhaps you're a mother, a problem solver, a manager, a teacher, an artist, a a medic. Do you know what your calling is? Not the same necessarily as the job you do, though one would hope that within the the job that you do there is some expression of what your calling is. But do you know it? And what I want to ask tonight are two questions. What is God going to do through you? That's the first question. I'll tell you the second one later. First of all, what will God do through you? Consider what God did through Jonah at Nineveh. 120,000 people saved from death and destruction. And because there is something of the cartoon quality about this book, we can neglect the impact that is being described. 120,000 people saved from destruction. Over the last week or so, we've all been touched deeply by the destruction of 77 people in Norway. We'll scale it up. That's what we're talking about. The potential destruction of 120,000. And what did God do through Jonah? Well, he turns it round. They respond to the word of God in the mouth of Jonah, and we have in front of us this tremendous glory of a repentant city. I said last week, it's about the same size as Norwich. Imagine a repentant Norwich. Imagine if if within just the city walls, every single soul called urgently on God, gave up their evil ways, so that God relented and had compassion. Just imagine what that would be like. I've spent some time this week, not... not, uh, uh, this isn't about people in the church. I spent some time this week with some people who are absolutely lovely. But spiritually, they haven't a clue. They don't know their right hand from their left. And you're in touch this week, last week, with people for whom this matters destruction or a turning. That's what God did through Jonah. So what might he do through you? We remember that bit in Genesis where Abraham negotiates with God and says, uh, well, what, what if um, there are 50 people found who are okay in this city? What if there are 10? What if there are five? What if there's one? And you can do the same. What if, through you, God doesn't reach 120,000 people, but 1,000? What if through you he reaches 12? What if through you he only reaches one? What if through you he doesn't even reach people? Have you noticed, did you notice the cattle in this reading at the end? 
Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. It's not the first time they've appeared in the story. It's the second time. Because earlier on, by the decree of the king and his nobles in in chapter 3, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. The animals have been caught up in the uh, exercise of repentance that the king is ordering. And if they've been caught up with the exercise of repentance, then of course God cares about them. Of course God cares about the created order. What will God do through you? It may not be 120,000 people, though it may. It may be one. It may be a cow. I don't know. I don't think cows get saved, but they might get cared for. God's grace reaches to all creation in this story. What will God do through you? And yet you have to ask, as you read this story, why would God do it that way? Why doesn't God, who is presumably, after all, God, why doesn't he just reach down, since he wants Nineveh to be turned from its evil ways, and simply turn their hearts? Think of the investment that God makes in this process. He takes this idiot of a prophet who runs away. He appoints a vast fish. He's got to organize the oceans to sort things out. Uh, He's got to sort out agriculture. He's got this weedy vine that's got to uh, come up and then uh, organize the the, the weather so that the, the wind blows over it. God goes to enormous trouble in this story. Why? Why doesn't he just turn their hearts? And the answer is because God has always worked and always will work through his word. From the creation, where the the word uh, kicked it all off, to the word of God that's spoken forth in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, to the word of command when the heavens are rolled back. Why should it be that God always works through his word? At one level, we can say we don't know. It's just his pleasure. It's the way he chooses to do things. And that's an okay answer. But here's just something to think about. Because this can, this, this, I think this matters. Because what may be hindering some people uh, from following their calling is a sense that, well, the God doesn't need me. He can do it without me. Well, yes, of course he does. He could. But he may not choose to do it without you. He may want you to be involved in the same way he wants Jonah to be involved. So it's important that we understand why God does things the way he does. Well, there are two possibilities. Let us assume that God just turned their hearts. In that case, he's turned them into robots. That's one option for him. Another option for him is for Jonah to turn up and go zap and all their hearts would be turned. In that case, he's turned Jonah into a wizard. What he he always does, therefore, is something that, because he utters his word, it demands a response. He, He 
utters his word to suggest, to command, to demand. But it's always an opportunity for free human response, for the penny to drop. And that's why we can say, as I said earlier, that grace has something sideways about it. It's not forced on the people of Nineveh. There is a word, and they have a moment of choice. And when any of us are exercising our calling, there is always an opportunity for the person at the other end. God always works obliquely. He doesn't force or compel. He doesn't go straight forward. He goes just a little bit sideways through someone else. Because at the heart of who God is, is communication and relationship. And you can't have relationship if you're forcing everything. So he puts the person in place to utter the word, goes, invests hugely in that person because he wants relationship. What will God do through you? I have no idea. But I can say that if you find and fulfill your calling, then you will find that God works through you and things happen. They may be tremendous things, as the world would count them. They may be very minor. Maybe lots of books, or it may be a changed character. It may be saving 120,000, or it may be just one. It doesn't matter. God will do things. What will God do through you then? But then the second question I ask is, how will God care for you? See, if the full point of this story, look at verse 11. Uh, Nineveh's more than 120,000 people who cannot tell the right hand from the left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? If the whole point of the story is in verse 11, then the book should have a different title, shouldn't it? It should be called the book of Nineveh. Because that's what God cared about. The 120,000 people and the cattle in Nineveh. Because it would, it would be called that because it would be about that. But it's called Jonah. Because Jonah and God's people of whom he was a prophet are part of the point of the story. A story where you could put the point like this. Uh, through Jonah, through this story, God is saying to his own people, open your hearts. I am more gracious than you thought. I can reach people you hadn't cared about yourself. That needs to come through when we consider Jonah's self-centeredness. How did it start off? He ran away, took a ship to Tarshish. Now, in this story, the word anger or angry comes eight times in this chapter. Have you any right to be angry, says God in verse 4. And and so uh, Jonah goes off and sulks to watch what's going to happen. Uh, And then again in verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? I do, he said, stamping his little foot. Uh, God has sent this uh, this weed of a vine and a worm and a wind, all the W's, and uh, uh, Jonah is furious because his comforts have been taken away. Can I just take a side 
moment here. It struck me that something is going on that's not at the heart of the passage. But I think it can happen, and it may be helpful to someone to think about it like this. Jonah has not done what he should do. And there is inside him all that frustration, all the mess that's come from that. He's still living through it, even though the the fish long ago vomited him out onto dry land and he's, he's finally got on with it. If we eventually do what we should have done, there can still sometimes be a memory of disobedience that can leave us very focused on ourselves. So what's that gone on for Jonah? I knew, that's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. He hasn't really got over that experience. He had a, he had a bit of a, uh, a crisis and a conversion moment inside the fish in chapter 2, and, the, and he's done what he was told to do, but he's still taking the opportunity to be self-righteous. That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew you'd go and do this. I knew you'd forgive them. He may have done what he was supposed to do now, but there is still that memory of another time, and it marks him. It keeps him focused on himself in a way he wouldn't have been if he'd been obedient in the first place. So, uh, Jonah is marked by this tremendous anger. So, of course, part of the point is God saying, look at Nineveh, remember Jonah, I care about them too. There's a lovely word um, in, uh, where will I find it? There's a few times where it comes. Uh, Three, four. Yes, try verse six. Uh, Then the Lord God provided a vine. Verse seven. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. Verse eight. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. Notice how subtle grace is. God just provides these things. There's one other time the word occurs. God provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. God is in charge. But the way in which he shows his in-chargeness is by providing. Doesn't overwhelm, but he provides. In Nineveh, God was heard. But Jonah remains upset because Jonah himself was ignored. Jonah is for Jonah. Uh, He prayed to the Lord in verse 1, after the city has turned and repented. Uh, And it's extraordinary. He doesn't even complain about the Ninevites. His focus is completely on himself. Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew His focus is on himself. Jonah is for Jonah, completely self-centered. So, of course, part of the point is, look, Jonah, I care about Nineveh. Look, people of Jonah, I care about Nineveh and and all those people that you're excluding. But let's ask this, because both things are happening in the story, the conversion of Nineveh And we hope and pray, though we don't get it, conversion of Jonah. We trust that God's words at the end of the chapter made sense. 
from God's point of view, which is the greater miracle? A change of heart in Nineveh or a change of heart in Jonah? We have to assume that mathematically, in God's mathematics, they are the same. It's like saying, is this infinity bigger than that infinity? God's heart is big enough for both ambitions. So let's try and wrap some things up. How is God going to care for you? In this story, he cared for the Ninevites, but he also cared for Jonah. He cared about their heart, that it should be turned. Uh, uh, Two illustrations as we finish. I said earlier, I was at the wedding yesterday of uh, Mike and Beth Allen. Uh, One of the things that you may not realise, it kind of goes with the the territory of the job that I do, is you probably think that, oh, um, let me... Let me think. There's, there's uh, Alvin and Mar- uh, Margaret Whitehead over there. You may think that once upon a time, uh, someone came along and married them. Uh, but they didn't. If you look at actually what goes on legally in a, a service uh, that is a wedding or in a register's office, they marry each other. I can't marry them. A registrar can't marry them. But it doesn't mean you're not married. You are married. Um, The point is you married each other. No one can marry you. But a a person in a church, if it would be a church minister or a registrar, is called on to witness with words what they are doing. Do you see, again, it's oblique. The minister or registrar isn't doing it. They are doing it. But there are words that witness to what's going on. What is done in this story is done because God chooses it to be done. And it pleases him. And what goes on in any vocation is, uh, is done because God chooses it so. And it pleases him. Irrespective of whether or not it's producing 50 books and thousands of sermons or whether it's simply producing a bit of kindness in a child of yours. A second illustration, when I was thinking about what I should do with my life, I suppose thinking about what vocation I had, I was surrounded by people, because it was that kind of university, uh, where people said, do you know, Alan, um, I wanted to go into the um, city and make um, lots and lots of money, but God called me to be a a, a church minister. Or someone else would have said, do you know, I wanted to go and um, uh, play rugby for Leicester, but God called me to be a church minister. And I felt really bad because I wanted to be a church minister. (laughs) So so the the model that I assumed meant that 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 meant I shouldn't do it because everyone around me was saying, if you want to do it, then it's not God's will. And I I went to see a a wise man who was a chaplain uh, within the university. And he gave me some advice that I pass on for what it's worth. It has stood me in good stead. He said, Alan, don't ever let yourself suppose that if God wants you to be a minister in a church, it is for the good of the church. God, if God can raise up from the, st- from the stones of the street children for Abraham, as Jesus says, he does not need you in his church. If God wants you to be a church minister, it is because of what he will achieve in you. 
not because of what you will achieve. They may be, those things will be incidental. They may be great things, they may be insignificant things. That's, that's not the point. It is what God will do through you, in you, that matters. That's how he will care for you. That's how he will form the character of Christ in you. We orbit God. We are not the center. And whatever your vocation and calling may be, it may have tremendous impact across the world. It may have the tiniest of impact, what God will do through you. But it is a calling on your life because, amongst other things, it is what God wants to do in you and for you. It is the way God's character will, Christ's character will be formed in you. God's calling locates us at the right spot for his ambitions in the world and for his care for us. So find your calling. Look how much effort God the Lord did make in the story of Jonah. He sorted out oceans and winds and all of that, as I said earlier, to get that man to that space where he would fulfill the calling laid on his life. He will provide for you if he provided for Jonah in order to develop the character of Christ in you. There's another connection with the ministry of John Stott here. I don't know what the numbers are. Only when we are in glory will we discover them. Jonah was called to turn the hearts of 120,000 people to the Lord. I would guess that John Stott turned the hearts of at least that many over his ministry. These are remarkable stories. But you may also be called just to touch the heart of one fellow worker and turn that heart towards Jesus. That is not less of a miracle. Find your calling and act in it wholeheartedly so that God can work through you And his kindness will bear fruit in you. And who's going to say which is the greater miracle? Let's pray. And a moment of quiet. Because although I asked at the start of our time, what is your calling or vocation? I know full well that many of us are sitting here wishing we knew the answer. Perhaps we just don't know, never have known. Perhaps we're branching out in life and wondering. Or perhaps we've thought it's one thing and we're beginning to think it's another. So a moment of just peace and quiet to consider before God.
Lord God, give us hearts that are obedient, we pray. In calling us and in working through us, work miracles, we pray. As a word from you comes to a world that had not previously heard it. But then as you call us and work through us, we pray too that you would work that other miracle of caring for us and working in us and forming in us the character of Jesus Christ, our Lord.